Now, welcome back, everyone. It works to have your video on. Uh, it's nice for me to be able to see people as I'm as we're talking together. Thank you. And the yeah, greetings. <laughs> welcome back. Um, the theme for today is continuing the theme from the last three talks. And I'm imagining this as the fourth and final talk in a series on developing skillful speech, skillful communication. In the first two talks, I emphasize the foundations of wise speech or skillful speech identifying uh, four foundations of wise speech. And then last time, I extended our practice of wise speech to bringing in skillful speech when there are difficulties or challenges or conflicts. And today, I want to continue the emphasis from last time and spend most of the time focusing on skillful speech when there are challenging situations and bring in, uh, in, the, in the second half of the talk today, bringing in some kinds of challenges that we haven't looked at in the previous talks. So I'll first talk about um, the what I'm calling the four foundations of skillful speech. I'll do that pretty briefly. And we do have recordings of the first three talks, which go into more depth on those. And then I'll talk again on the brief side about practicing with difficult speech situations in general, uh, and then go into a more extended uh, examination of that in the, again, about the last half of the talk. So first, again, to remind us of the importance of why speech practice, that we can very easily lose what we might call our spiritual center in the midst of interaction, being with people. Uh, often, I've mentioned a few times, in Buddhist communities in the West where meditation is uh, central, we often focus almost entirely on meditation and not so much on skillful speech. Even though in the teachings of the Buddha, wise speech is one of the eight factors of the Noble Eightfold Path. And in that context, it's not surprising that we can see over the years a number of ways that many Buddhist communities have not always been very skillful with differences and conflicts. Unfortunately, that is the case. I have witnessed some of those close up. And in part, it's because we haven't integrated uh, the emphasis on why speech, in my view, enough or how to work skillfully with differences and conflicts. So it's a crucial, a crucial emphasis. It's also very central for having our practice be increasingly there in all the parts of our lives. 
In other words, in our daily lives as well as in our formal meditation. So very, very central. And so I've identified what I call four foundations. And my, my formulation of the four foundations is my own. That this, there's this, unlike when we talk about the four foundations of mindfulness, there's not um, a teaching from the Buddha called the four foundations of wise speech. There are teachings that I integrate, but these four foundations are my own formulation that especially have come over teaching retreats and teaching on wise speech over roughly the last 20 years, including the last uh, 14 or so years teaching a lot with my colleague Orin J. Sofer. And so a lot of these have come in collaboration uh, with Orin. So I'll mention these briefly, and again, there's more detail in the uh, previous talks. First foundation is developing the capacity to be present and even mindful in the midst of speaking or in the midst of listening. This is not easy. You can practice it right now because you're mostly in a listening capacity. It, it can be developed very simply by having some degree of body awareness as we listen. It could be being aware of your hands and your feet as you listen to me, having 20-30% of the attention with your body. Body awareness is very, very central, especially in this culture, for being able to be present while we're speaking, while we're listening. It is possible. You know, for many of us, our default way of speaking is to be totally in a mental realm. And that has problems in that we're not necessarily aware of what's going through our minds, our bodies, our hearts. And we can very easily be unautomatic when we're in the midst of speaking. Does anyone relate to that? Does that resonate with people in your experience? Yeah, a lot of, a lot of people raising their hands. And so I'll, be, I'll stay with that. I could say a lot more, and there's more in the previous talks. The second foundation is working with the traditional guidelines given by the Buddha for wise speech or skillful speech. And again, I'll be brief here, but the Buddha did give what I reconstruct as four guidelines, which are very, very helpful. The first guideline is to be truthful. The second guideline is to be helpful. The third guideline is to come from kindness and a good heart. And the fourth guideline is to have appropriateness of speaking, especially having good timing. And all four of these have to be uh, together. We can be very, very truthful and not come out of kindness. And we sometimes call that dumping. I can be really truthful about the faults of another person, right? And so we have to have all four of these together. You know, this is from the Buddha. He, he says, and he, he talks about five guidelines, but I think if we listen, we can hear that there are two ways of expressing warmth or kindness. A statement endowed with five factors is well-spoken and not ill-spoken. Which five? It is spoken at the right time. It is spoken in truth. It is spoken affectionately. 
It is spoken beneficially. It is spoken with a mind of goodwill. And so these four guidelines are crucial. And again, uh, I gave much more detail. And we could take the rest of the time just going into the different nuances of what it means to be truthful, what it means to be helpful, what it means to come from a good heart. And that's even when we're saying something difficult or painful uh, or something the other person doesn't want to hear, we can have, uh, you know, the equivalent of tough love, which in Buddhist circles could be called tough metta. You know, or, you know, I'm joking a little bit, but being able to keep the kind heart, even when we're saying something uh, challenging. And these guidelines are especially important because they give us behavioral guidance. On the one hand, they let us monitor how we're acting. And they also give us feedback such that when I notice, oh, I wasn't so truthful, and if I notice that in the moment, I can bring mindfulness and saying, okay, Donald, I was exaggerating a lot there. What's going on right now? So the guidelines function both uh, to help us with how we act, and they also help us to check in in mindfulness and inquiry when we notice departure from the guidelines. A third dimension of practicing skillful speech is to bring mindfulness and clarity to what's going on in our experience in the midst of speech practice. In other words, to have some mindfulness of thoughts, of emotions, of body states in the midst of speech. This is not easy, again, because we're often on automatic when we're speaking. But it's to know, you know, um, you know, I think uh, like Tracy was exploring anger earlier. It's to know I'm angry. Can I know that in the moment, in the middle of speech? Incredibly helpful if I know that, right? Uh, oh, I'm really sad or I'm there's a lot of reactivity going on or I'm really triggered by what that person said. To really know that is so crucial. And here our practice of speech is very much supported by our mindfulness practice, by our practice, you know, as again, as we were exploring earlier, where we might be exploring in our formal practice anger at times or sadness or other difficult emotions or wonderful emotions, joy, and so forth. And so we practice outside of speech to get to know these aspects of our experience. And that's very much complementary because so much of why speech practice is knowing what's happening in the middle of speech in our experience. Am I really triggered? It's not simply applying guidelines. It's actually knowing what's going on in the present moment. Again, that's hard without some degree of presence. So you can see how these are, are interrelated. And then the fourth practice that I gave, which I focused on a lot uh, the second session and some last time, is cultivating empathy as a foundational practice. And 
I interpreted empathy as the ability to tune into another person's experience. And I distinguish between empathy as an innate capacity, which is shown by the scientific research, particularly in the neurosciences. I distinguish between empathy as an innate capacity to tune into others' experience, particularly their emotions, what's meaningful to them, and so forth. I distinguish between that as empathy as a practice because we can actually be empathic in a natural way, but actually use our empathic knowledge in order to manipulate people or to do things which are negative. As I mentioned last time, politicians have been known to do this at times, right? Can tune in, okay, really tune in knowing what's going on for a given part of the population, but then use that empathic knowledge to manipulate people. Psychopaths have empathy. It's part of their background. So I like to distinguish between empathy as a foundational capacity and empathy as an intentional practice aiming at understanding and connection. And the empathy practice that I gave was to tune in deliberately to two dimensions of experience. And here I'm using, I was using some of the model from nonviolent communication, again, outlined in the last two talks, uh, but to tune into what are the emotions of another person and what matters for that person. And here we connected with the nonviolent communication uh, category of what they call needs. And so this were, this is that we can tune into what matters for someone, but very crucially distinguish between what deeply matters and the particular strategy that someone uses. So I may need some sense of peace and I may um, use addictive substances in order to find peace. That may not be skillful, but my underlying sense of what matters is peace, and that's valid, right? And my strategy to get peace may be very unskillful. A crucial distinction, which means that I can develop empathy for someone who is using very unskillful strategies. The example I think I gave last time was the facilitator of a meeting, maybe my boss, who facilitates the meeting as a control freak, so to speak, right? But I can value that the facilitator wants efficiency, wants to meet the objectives, wants to, you know, that. I, and so distinguishing between what matters and strategy becomes very, very crucial for having empathy with our difficult conversations. Because often we may be critical of the strategies. And often we get fixated on the strategies and we lose all possibility of empathy with someone with whom we disagree. And so that's a kind of a segue to my uh, next section, which is the, the value of bringing uh, our practice of wise speech to difficult interactions. And again, 
we're going to train a lot in those four foundations of skillful speech. We're going to train a lot in situations which are easier. So you can train in being present right now as you listen. You can train in, listen, in um, being present while listening when you're when you don't have to speak, like in, uh, you know, maybe at a meeting in a listen capacity and so forth. Or it could be even, you could even practice being present when you watch a movie, you know, just keep body awareness and so forth. So we practice in easier or simpler situations. And that's where we really develop all of these four foundations. We don't wait till we have difficult circumstances to develop skillful speech. If we do that, it's not going to be developed, right? We need to develop it where it's easier. So working with the guidelines in easier situations. You know, this is from the Tibetan tradition. When the sun shines and my belly is full, in other words, easier situations, I look like a Dharma practitioner. But it is when difficulties arise that my troubles, that my faults are exposed. An old uh, saying from the Tibetan tradition. And so, can we bring the intention for skillful speech into our challenging situations? Into our situations, and what defines a challenging situation? It's basically where I have challenging uh, experiences. You know, I had an interesting, we had an interesting time, I think several years ago, I asked the group meeting on Wednesday, uh, what would you like me to talk about? And one of the suggested, the suggested topic, which had the most votes when we tabled all of these, was how to be with quote unquote difficult people. How can I bring my practice to being with difficult people? And after a little bit of inquiry, I think we found this the first meeting when I talked about this and when we explored how to be with difficult people, how do you define a difficult person? Well, the answer is a difficult person isn't a simple objective category. It would be nice if it were, but it, what, it, what defines a difficult person? A difficult person is someone with whom I have difficult experiences. <laughs> Right? And we know that people with whom we had difficult experiences, a type of person five years ago may not be difficult now. Right? And so that points to really the way that this is about our experience. So that's really, that's really, really important. And the, the, one of the approaches that I gave last time was a practice of bringing empathy into difficult circumstances. And let's, let's bring up that slide, uh, Carlita, the empathy map. This was something I gave last time, a really key, very simple model for a difficult situation. So this is where we, um, and you can even think about a difficult situation involving one other person for yourself. And you could even think, how do you fill this out? What are one or two of my emotions with a difficult situation. Maybe I have some anger and some frustration. And then what matters? What are my needs? 
for me, it may be to um, have a sense of connection and have a sense of, uh, of uh, we sometimes call being heard. And the other person's emotions could well also be very similar. What are the other person's emotions in your situation? Sometimes we find that my emotions and the other person's are, uh, are very similar. The other person may have frustration with uh, our discussion as well. And the other person's needs may be to communicate and feel heard. So this is a very interesting map. I, I, put, I left this, you can download it from the Dharma Seed website for, I think, the last two talks. You can get this map and we can, we can use that. So this is a way of working with a difficult situation. So we can let go of this, this now. And that can be a very, very uh, powerful, very powerful practice to work with it. The main thing is to start having an interest in difficult situations that are on the workable side. You know, a few more words about being with difficult situations. You know, we want to know what's happening. Grounding in the body can be very, very helpful. You know, uh, I mentioned last time how it can be really valuable sometimes just to uh, ask for a little bit of a time out. If we get triggered, it's helpful to ground in the body. Feel one's feet, feel one's hands. That can be really, really crucial. It's very hard to use our wise speech tools when the body feels out of control. And so it can be really crucial sometimes to take a time out, to ask for a time out. One technique I often recommend and try it out is when you're in the middle of a difficult situation and you're feeling triggered, say to the other person, I really need to go to the bathroom now. It's very unusual for people to question you're going to the bathroom. <laughs> and so you can use this as a technique. And um, I'd like to say that that technique comes straight from the Buddha, but it doesn't. Yeah. You know, it comes from my own um, practice. So grounding in the body, taking breaks, uh, sometimes even saying, could we come back tomorrow or in a week? And work and work with the difficulty, and then you know, and then remembering that listening, the 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 situation, uh, listening very deeply to what's beneath the surface, not being caught necessarily by just the surface level of what the other person is saying. Listen empathically for what really matters more deeply, and I'll come back to that in a moment. So I'm going to go to my the last area that I wanted to talk about, which is sort of a, um, a significant area where there can be difficulties in communication. And this is really relating our skillful speech to the social dimension. You know, especially uh, the way in which in many countries, there's, uh, including the United States very much, there's polarization. There's polarization around different views, and, you know, there are many ways in which we're not necessarily empathic towards those with whom we have differences. We may not be empathic to people from other countries. 
You know, the, the writer Jeremy Rifkin wrote a book called The Empathetic Civilization and said empathy was the most crucial capacity to develop, to actually resolve our large systematic issues like climate disruption, right? That empathy is really, really crucial. You know, I like to quote a, a writer for the San Francisco Chronicle named Otis Taylor, who wrote during the 2016 election, he said, I argue that the lack of empathy is the most pressing issue in America. It's more compelling than national security threats, bad trade deals, unpaid taxes, and deleted emails. And so there's this very high degree of polarization and we find it, as it were, on both sides of the political spectrum, right? It's not, it's not simply on one side. We can find a kind of polarization and almost like a, a stereotyping of those on the other side negatively so that we don't have empathy and we don't listen. That's very, very common. And we can see that again, as it were, on both sides of the political spectrum. Um, you know, on the side that we typically call the right, we have, um, you know, this is, uh, there's, a very, there's a very important writer that some of you may know named Heather McGee, who uh, wrote a very beautiful book called The Sum of Us about ways of going beyond polarization. Uh, McGee is spelled G, uh, uh, M-C-G-H-E, and the book is called The Sum of Us. And she, uh, you know, again, she criticizes people, as it were, on both sides. This is how she characterized what sometimes happens coming from more of the right wing. She says, Fox News sometimes offers racial resentment for breakfast, group status threat for lunch, fear of the Muslim terrorist, fear of the Muslim terrorist as a cocktail hour, and for dinner, take it home with uh, rioters in the streets and hordes of undocumented immigrants. That's from one side, you know, and the problem is often taken to be people of color, particularly poor people of color, right? And then on the other side, the liberal or left side, you know, you can remember the statement uh, from the 2016 election from Hillary Clinton, right? She talked about what was a basket of deplorables, right? characterizing a group of deplorables, often really negatively caricaturing uh, rural people, uh, particularly rural white people, as uneducated, um, as backward, as anti-intellectual, as bigoted, right? And so there can be that um, level of bias on both sides, right? Can be very very powerful, and so how do we how do we cut through this? Uh, empathy becomes a very very key tool, and I want to um, I want to see uh, Carlita. How are we with the video? Does that look like we have it? I wanted to show. Um, we'll see how much time we have. I wanted to show at least one video of skillful speech in difficult social circumstances. And I'll, I'll give background for the first video. It'll be about six minutes of video, but I want to give a little bit of background. This is from the Civil Rights Movement. And this is an example of a woman named Diane Nash, 
speaking firmly but speaking with empathy at a very heated moment in a way that has massive powerful um, results uh, with the civil rights movement. Like here's the background. This is uh, Nashville, 1960. There is a movement led by, particularly by a minister named James Lawson, who is still alive. Um, wonder, he's 94. He lives in Los Angeles, and he had received nonviolence training in India in the 1950s. He met Martin Luther King, who said, come south, we need people like you. He went to Nashville, and he particularly trained people at Fisk University. These included people such as John Lewis, the future congressperson who just died recently, you know, the advocate of what he called good trouble. Remember that? And uh, also includes um, one of the students is Diane Nash, who figures very prominently in the video. And they, after weeks of training, they started a, a series of sit-ins against uh, the segregation of lunch counters at department stores. They did that for a number of weeks, and then they later moved to boycotts of the department stores. It engendered massive support from the black community and significant amount from some of the white community. And it was still going. And then at one point, and we'll see this in the film, there was a kind of a backlash. And there was a bombing of the house of the most prominent uh, black minister in Nashville named uh, D. Alexander Luby. And after that, there was an impromptu march that went from Fisk University to City Hall, where they wanted to talk with the mayor, whose name is Ben West, whose name was Ben West. At that point, there was a black minister, C.T. Vivian, who got in a heated argument with the mayor and was probably, you know, had very good points, but was basically attacking him. And that's where Diane Nash stepped in and met the mayor with empathy and with connection, but still asking some important questions. And this is what, this is what gets shown in the video. And what you'll see is that Diane Nash intervening like that led the mayor to say, it's right to totally desegregate Nashville. And it marked a complete turning point and things changed. All the basis might not have happened with Diana, Diane Nash talking to him for about five minutes. So I want to show that video right now. Okay.
arrests and arrests continue. The conflict becomes a seemingly permanent fact of life in the downtown shopping district. Picketing and boycotting provoke a racist backlash. But the counter-demonstrations backfire. Frightened white people begin avoiding the downtown area, unwittingly joining the boycott. A Fisk University economist calculates that some downtown stores have lost up to 40% of their business. As Easter approaches, the usual surge of spring buying never happens. Among blacks, the boycott is estimated at 98%. That was a powerful message sent to the white community that, you know, it's one thing just to deal with these students on a Saturday to Saturday basis and lock them up and let them get bailed out and we'll try them and send us some $50 fines and that sort of thing. But another thing, when you go down there and there's nobody on the street. At Easter, the counters are still segregated. But the sit-ins have put civil rights on the national agenda as never before. For the past several months, a new strategy to end racial segregation has been spreading through the South. On Easter Sunday, NBC's Meet the Press looks at nonviolent resistance. The moderator suggests that boycotts might be better than sit-ins and arrests. Dr. King, wouldn't you be on stronger grounds, though, if you refused to buy at those stores and if you called upon the white people of the country to follow you because of both your moral and your legal right not to buy? I think, Mr. Spivak, sometimes it is necessary to dramatize an issue because many people are not aware of what's happening. And I think the sit-ins serve to dramatize the indignities and the injustices and the dissatisfaction of the Negro with the whole system of segregation. This will be Diane Nash. We had a meeting planned for 6 a.m. I was in the dormitory getting dressed. And I heard this big boom. I soon learned that attorney Z. Alexander Luby's home had been bombed. It, of course, was the effort of the enemy to scare us off. Violence this is has a very Lawson. simple dynamic. I make you suffer more than I suffer. I make you suffer until you cry uncle. And you surrender. That's, that's what a war is. It's violence. The difference in, with nonviolence is we don't want to beat the opponent up. We don't think that does any good. Luby and his wife are uninjured. But as Lawson has taught his students, violence can backfire. The bombing has shocked the city and given the students a strategic opportunity. They send a telegram to the mayor demanding a meeting and they organize a silent march from the campus to City Hall. 
they begin with 1,500 marchers. Along the way, their number doubles. Mayor Ben West is waiting for them. West gets into an argument with a black minister. But then, Diane Nash steps forward with some very direct questions. I asked the mayor, first of all, Mayor West, do you feel that it's wrong to discriminate against a person solely on the basis of his race or color? I tried the be as best I could to answer it, frankly and honestly that I could not agree that it was morally right for someone to sell them merchandise and refuse them service. And I had to answer it just exactly that way. Nash goes on to ask the mayor whether he feels the lunch counters should be desegregated. He answers, yes. It was the first major change in the attitudes of the city. Nashville began to desegregate its public institutions uh, and its department stores that day. It took three, four years before theaters, restaurants, uh, all public conveyances were desegregated. But with Ben West's declaration, no, it's not right, the process of change began. The downtown retailers now tell the students yeah, privately they want to desec. That's a powerful story, and uh, yeah, part of the reason I brought it in is that none of that may have happened without Diane Nash actually having firm, but I think empathic conversation with the mayor, right? and bringing that in as a powerful example of skillful speech in a very difficult situation. And again, it came out of the training that she got from Lawson, where the emphasis is on not defeating the opponent, but you know, creating uh, what was called the beloved community, right? creating the community where all come together and empathy and empathic listening being very central to that. We can hear that uh, continually or see that continually. If you read, you know, biographies of King, he was always talking very closely, particularly with uh, his jailers, who were basically poor white people. There's continual uh, talking and being, being empathic in that way. And I want to give one further example of listening across uh, polarization. And this is more contemporary. This comes from an approach which is used widely called uh, deep canvassing, where people go and have extended conversations, knock on doors, and talk to people about what's going on for them. You know, the people who are canvassing, they have their own... Uh, policy preferences, but they're not trying to simply convince someone, they're trying to listen empathically to the other person and share 
in a, in a deep way and share their own experience and hear about the other person without trying to give arguments and, and so forth. So this is, a, I think, a very crucial um, approach and tool for uh, also for work for bringing skillful speech into situations of polarization. <coughs> so again, it's not about trying to persuade someone, but really trying to listen and just see what's there. And um, so let's go. The, the, the second one, we just have, uh, we have audio, but this, this is an example of deep canvassing in Michigan in a primarily white rural area by a woman uh, named uh, Caitlin uh, Homrich, uh, I think, uh, Nelling. So let's go with this. This is another example. Of sort of so deep canvassing, I mean, I think you would assume that people would feel put off by the stranger asking what it was like for them to be a single mom 20 years ago or what it was like for them to have to make decisions to go to work instead of taking care of their kids when they were sick or instead of taking their kids to the doctor, still sending them to school or you'd think that they would feel that a stranger should not be asking them those questions. But if you have the courage to ask people for the most part are willing to tell you. And for a lot of people, it's a transformative experience because nobody's ever asked them questions like that. Not even their closest loved ones or best friends. The very first conversation we had as part of this project, we kind of had a script with this first door that we went to, but it was really a mess. We just knew we needed to ask questions to get to his story and what he was connecting with immigrants. So his name was Ed, and I had two volunteers with me, Susan and Zareth. And they were just going to observe. And I was scared shitless because I had no idea what I was doing. So we asked Ed, how do you feel about raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour on a scale of zero to 10, where 10 is definitely and zero is definitely not and five is undecided? I'm a 10, Ed says. Okay, well, what about if it included undocumented immigrants? He went off about how undocumented immigrants didn't deserve it and how that makes him want to put himself at a zero. I asked him if he knew any immigrants, and he didn't. Then I asked him, when's a time in his life when he's really needed care or support? And he started telling me about how he wasn't too happy with where his life was. Like, he's glad that he is where he is now in this trailer park in Oakland County, but he thought he was going to go a lot further. And he didn't because instead he had struggled with addiction to the extent that he was incarcerated, that he was homeless for several years. And I just kept asking questions about that experience, about what happened and what it felt like and what his relationship was to his family at that time. He shared about how his dad had been disappointed in him. And then he realized he did know an immigrant 
His dad was an immigrant. <laughs> His dad was an immigrant from England. And he worked in factories in England as a child and immigrated to the United States for a better life. And I kind of made the case to him that the immigrants coming over here and him have a lot more in common. This economy is hard and this world is hard and they're just wanting to do what's best for their families. And he agreed. <laughs> so by the end of the conversation, he, was, he, <laughs> he had changed his mind completely. That was the first conversation. It was incredible. I cried a little bit, like I was tearing up. And Susan and Zareth and I looked at each other afterwards, like wide eyes and like our heads kind of like shaking or nodding, like just incredulous, disbelief. It was just amazing. Thank you, Carlita. Yeah, so the potential power of our wise speech practice in our own personal lives, but also brought into the larger world, right? That's, I, I, we can come back in, in a, just in a moment and have some discussion, but the power of skillful speech, all the different dimensions, being present, working with the guidelines, um, noticing what's happening in our own experience and being able to work skillfully with our own emotions and thoughts and so forth. And then the practice of empathy. Very, very crucial. Whether we're talking with someone we've known for 30 years, whether we're having a conversation in the community or with coworkers, or across uh, political divides. Again, we practice at the foundational level where it's easier in order to bring them into more challenging situations. So I'll just end with uh, a few readings and we'll, then we can move to discussion. I'll come back to what the Buddha said. A statement endowed with five factors is well-spoken, not ill-spoken. Which five? It is spoken at the right time. It is spoken in truth. It is spoken affectionately. It is spoken beneficially, it is spoken with a mind of goodwill. And then second reading is from uh, Marshall Rosenberg, the founder of Nonviolent Communication. Our ability to offer empathy can allow us to stay vulnerable, diffuse potential violence, help us to hear the word no without taking it as a rejection, revive lifeless conversation, and even hear the feelings and needs expressed through silence. And then lastly, from uh, Mickey Kashtan, who has also been a trainer in nonviolent communication and other areas as well. When people feel fully heard, when they know they matter, they are more likely to be open to hearing from others. Let's just sit quietly for a few moments and let the talk and the videos and everything settle. And notice what is there for you 
emotions, thoughts, intentions, questions. And see if you want to share something or ask something. And later today, I'll post the recording on Dharma Seed, and I'll put as part of the write-up, I'll put the, um, the links for the videos. And so you could see them. The, the first uh, selection came from a uh, PBS program called A Force More Powerful, which gives about 30-minute um, programs, six of them, on the use of uh, nonviolence in six different places. The first one is with Gandhi in India. The second is about a half-hour segment on... Um, on Nashville in 1960. And so I'll give the link for that. It's there. Both of those are on YouTube and readily available. So thanks. So we have, looks like we have uh, uh, Chess and then Liz. Chess, do you have a sharing or question? Yes, thank you. I'm, uh, and could you get a, maybe a little closer to the mic? I'm you're a little bit uh, quiet there. Well, I'm moving right now. So, Great. Uh, I, I mean, I'm, in, I'm, I'm going upstairs. Um, I was going to say, what comes first, the chicken or the egg? Let's say you go into a community and you put your best foot forward and they reject you because they don't like you. And so then you become uh, negative because that affects you. Sorry, sounds like we're not, not hearing things, uh, Chess. Um, no, no, I, I, I'm stuck. I, I oh, okay. said when, when people do things that are not nice to you yeah. because they don't like you, that affects you. You can't, you know, and if that lasts and that's sustained for years, then it affects you. You become negative too. That that can happen. That's that can be a very deep part of practice. To you know, if I have received, uh, let's say, what we can call negative treatment over a lot of years from you know, which sometimes happens in a family context, it could happen in a community context. How do we, how do we work with that? And that that's, is really where our spiritual practice comes in. You know, for that was, you know, very, very central in Nashville 1960. You know, someone like Dr. King, you know, that, you know, how do we, how do we, uh, you know, for him, it was coming from uh, more of a Christian perspective and say, how do we stay with love even though we've been brutalized? You know, and so it, this is not easy. From a Buddhist perspective, it can involve inner work, 
with, um, with what's painful. And there's not necessarily a rush to try to get to a place beyond, um, you know, beyond what we, we hear in, in this class we call reactivity. So, um, again, and we, we, so being with what's painful or difficult to us is a key part of our practice. We can't rush it. And we, you know, we want to bring in different resources, community, you know, heart practices like compassion, loving kindness, joy, and ways to work with what's uh, painful or unpleasant. And, you know, maybe we, if it's a particular person in our life, maybe we, maybe we don't talk to that person for years. But the direction is somehow to come to our own healing and transformation, even if it takes a while. And again, we see that in the examples from, you know, the Nashville situation and, you know, in the work of um, people like Dr. King. Thanks. Um, Liz, please. Okay, I hope you can hear me. I don't have my I can hear you very well. Yeah, thanks. Oh, great. Thank you so much. Those those two videos were just life-changing. I'm not kidding. Really, really powerful. And I'm having a battle with a very close friend, which mm. is extraordinarily painful. And I think... Um, but... But not responding with what's coming at me is something that I've been practicing for the last year. Yeah. And it's been enormously helpful. I am trying not to respond with anger to the person who's angry. And that has shaken up several people. <laughs> they have understood what I was doing. And that has really changed them. Uh, well. That whole idea of not responding with what's coming at you. And uh, also, I, because of my friend, whom I love very much as a dear long-term friend, I can envision a time when we're not fighting. Yeah. So when I'm in the midst of it, I want to envision that time. And what can I do to bring that about? But also, I have to say that there, at the moment, I have limits. And maybe when I'm fully mature, I won't. But... How much poison can one take in? Right. It's really related to what Chess was also asking, that you want to, you know, uh, that's, where, that's where I like to, um, you know, work with that scale of 1 to 10 in terms of intensity and know where it's workable and know yes. where it's too much. And really... But when, when, uh, as a bigger person, maybe I, I could do more and, and hope for the future. But I also want to mention the words forgiveness and patience. Yeah. I think patience is very important here. And, we, and thinking about the outcome that we want, always the intention for the outcome. Really going in that direction. Liz, can I ask you a question? Sure. Yeah, what helps you to remember your intention not to meet anger with anger. You know, do you, do you prepare well, Donald, or think about you know it before the meeting? Well, I'm 84 years old, and I didn't do this until I was 83. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So I, I just got sick of it, you know? I wanted to change. I wanted something better to happen, but it took me... Yeah. 
But what helps Until you in the, most of my life? What helps you in the moment? Do you just have a very strong intention not to, you know, meet anger with anger? I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. Do you, is it do you, how what helps you to remember in the present moment to uh, you just have a very strong intention that stays with you and I have a strong intention and I see how ugly the fighting is. Yeah. yeah. I don't want it anymore. Yeah, great. I don't want it in my life. I want something else. Yeah. I want peace. I want love. But as I said, it's taken me many, many years to yeah. come to that point. Yeah. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. Thanks so much. Yeah, please. Looks like Barbara, please. Thanks, Liz. Hi. Um, whoops. Wait a second. The host test. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Yeah, just be uh, make sure you're you're a little close to the mic. So okay, is that yeah, better? That's a little better. Yeah. Okay. Well, I have one. I have a question. I wonder if anyone else is seeing you frozen, or it's on my end. That is, that's technical. Continually today, I've had you frozen. Oh. That's anyone, Carlita. Anything? No. He's currently spotlight so that we have our attention on him. So you haven't noticed that? Okay. Okay, the, what I noticed in the videos were two things. One, that each of the speakers, Diane and the other woman, yeah. and the other, Carolyn, had I think. a very yeah. calm effect. They were not hugely in huge um, energies, I guess. And the other, they both utilized the technique, if you want to use the word, of questioning and of asking yeah. questions rather than talking in the beginning. Right. And I wondered if you could speak to that as a part of skillful speech in these kind of situations. Yeah, yeah. Thanks so much, Barbara, for highlighting that. Um, you know, the um, it's really you know, part of empathy is actually having curiosity about the other, and so asking questions with with a sincere interest in knowing. Right. So asking questions can be really fundamental. Of course, we can use that as a technique where we're not really interested, but it really, but, but when there's sincere empathy or empathic intent, asking questions and then listening can be so fundamental. Listening is often even a metaphor for the whole spiritual path. My image right here, if you, if I bring it up a little bit, you can see that's Milarepa from the Tibetan tradition. You can see he has his hand to his ear. It's a metaphor for the entirety of spiritual practice, is listening. And so it can be very, uh, you know, very beautiful. So listening, asking questions could be an experiment for each of us. Can we experiment with bringing those more into our conversations, our dialogues? But especially crucial for, for empathy to really, so it's kind of deep listening beneath the surface. And we often get caught up with differences of views or positions. Can I listen more deeply for 
you know, what we were calling what matters, the needs, and so forth. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, Barbara. And then um, I, th I saw in the chat that, Alan, were you wanting to ask a question? Yeah, please go ahead. And if you can, if it works to have your video on, that'd be great too. Okay, thank you. Yeah, go ahead, Alan. Um, I'm trying to phrase it not so personally. Um, can you hear me now? Uh, some it's it's some been somewhat muffled. Uh, sounds like the connection uh, isn't isn't great. So maybe have your video off. It might be a little bit better. Hello. All right, let me try it. Hold on. Is that better? Yeah, that's better. Yeah. Okay. Um. Yeah, I. You know, this I resonate with everything everyone said, and you know. Of course, family is the hard, the hardest thing. Um, I guess the the question is always for us and my family is like when to walk away from. You know, we have a kind of mentally ill mother hmm. who's. Um, you know, we don't have much time left with her, but of course, it's very very challenging, and so it's hard to know when to when to just not engage and when. Like, I'm not, I'm trying to figure out what my question is. Um, <laughs> well, I think I think I, I I hear part of a question. I mean, it's just it's yeah. I, I think it's around this whole idea of the poise and the toxin. It's like it's 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 when it's too difficult to have an interaction. It's not toxic for for you. You know, what do you do? do you, and you also don't want to just abandon this person. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, again, um, and there's no answer, right? Yeah, there's, uh, you know, the answer will be the, the next period of time for you. But, um, a few things occur to me. One is that all of the foundations of wise speech, we practice in easier situations and get them stronger and then apply them in more difficult situations. So you can really know that when you're practicing wise speech in easier situations, it will contribute to what's happening um, with your mom. Um, so, yeah, that's true. Yeah. yeah. And, the, and then... Um, no, especially when... Yeah. Go ahead. I want to be especially a little bit brief because we're, we're at time, we're, but go ahead. No, um, I'm just noticing... What's that? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm good. I, I think the sound issue is also a problem, but I appreciate your answer. Yeah, well, I have one or two more thoughts, and then we'll, then we'll finish up. Um, sounds like partly just to experiment, to know your own level of, um, of reactivity, know, know when it's workable for you or when the reactivity is too much for you to really bring in skillful speech. And I think also helpful would be doing, try that, try out that empathy map and do that with different situations 
you can do that, you know, as it were, at a distance, not in the present moment of engagement. And that can be illuminating if you actually do that empathy map and, you know, with situations um, with, your, with your mom. And, you know, if it, you could also, this is what we do in our, our wise speech retreats, you might also even try a role play with a friend or possibly another family member and just experiment some, but not with your mom present. So, you know, the role plays in Nashville, 1960, I didn't, you know, if you see the whole video, you'll see the very central role of role plays with difficult situations. Maybe, mm. maybe I'll stop there. And, um, is and that, is that video on that site as well? The full video? Yeah. The full video is on YouTube. I will put the, it's called A Force More Powerful. You can find it on your own. Okay. Uh, but I'll Thank also you. put the link on uh, when I post things to Dharma Seed. So those are a few ideas. We could probably take another hour with your question. <laughs> and I, Thank I, you. I appreciate Thank it. Yeah. Thank you. So let's close and want to thank thank you, Carlita, for all your technical, um, wonderful work. <laughs> thank you. And let's close by just seeing what are the intentions that are there coming out of our time together. See what your intention is related to the theme of the exploration, or it could be something else that just arose. What's your intention? coming out of our session. And then we'll close with the dedication of merit. May our time together be a benefit to us, be a benefit to us in our speech, in our both uh, those easier and those harder. May our time together be a benefit to those in our lives. And then may our time together be a benefit ultimately to all beings, our horizon ultimately of practice. May our time together be a benefit to all beings, knowing that we are part of all beings. So thank you so much. Uh, I won't be with the group for a while. I think not till October because I'll be teaching and traveling. But I wish you well with your wise speech practice. May we all contribute mightily to the world with our wise speech practice, both in easier and harder situations. Yay. So I'll say goodbye and feel free to unmute and, and share if you wish. Donald, that was a humdinger. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. We'll miss you, Donald. Yeah. Blessings on your travels. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you so much. Thank you, Donald. Thank you, Kalita. That was Thanks wonderful. everyone for your questions. And thank you. sorry, Chess, we didn't get to get to your second question, but we can come back to it another time. Thank you, Donald. This was great. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Okay. Thanks, and Carlita, I saw there was interesting things in the chat. I would love to receive that. Thank you for mentioning that. I will save it right now.
Great. Uh, where was the, uh, where was the location again where those uh, YouTubes were going to be posted? It'll be on Dharma Seed where I post the audio and it's um, just Dharma go under Seed. Dharma Seed. Is that a website? What? Is that a website, Dharma Seed? Yeah, that's where all the recordings of Wednesday Talks are, are offered. It's okay. D-H-A-R-M-A-S-E-E-D dot org. And you okay. look under teachers and look under my name, Donald Rothberg. Okay, great. Thank I'll, you. I'll give links for the videos. Carlita, just put it in the chat, Tracy. Okay, great. Okay, thank you so much. I had one Thanks, question because um, there, there were several people that asked, and um, usually I catch the names of the writers, um, but I tried like 10 different spellings and <laughs> couldn't find it. The um, Johanna Jackman, Jackman asked, I don't think she's here now, but um, the, the woman or man who said, when people feel fully heard, when they know they matter, they will likely be open to others. Um, it sounded like Mickey Cash. It's, or something, a, it's but, a woman, uh, M-I-K-I. Okay. Cashtan, K-A-S-H-T-A-N. Oh, okay. Great. Thanks. No, she's a wonderful teacher. Yeah. Yeah, I just couldn't spell it cause when I it went by too fast, and I don't know the name. Thank you. Yeah. Th thanks, Victoria. Have thanks. a great traveling time. Thank great. You, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Carlita. Yay. Thank you. Carlita. Have a great week, everyone. We'll see you next time. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye bye. bye, -bye.